0: today we are uh, looking at the book of Romans. We are in the fifth chapter. Uh, Just uh, very briefly to catch us up. Uh, What we've been talking about uh, is that the book of of Romans is the apologetic of the Christian faith. In chapters 1 through 4, Paul is setting forth what makes Christianity different from every religion. And uh, because it says uh, that you cannot establish your own righteousness. And every religion is about that. It is about what you do, about establishing your own righteousness. In fact, Paul rebukes uh, the Jews in Romans chapter 10 when he said, Listen, you sought to establish a righteousness of your own apart from what God has established. And what is that righteousness? It is a righteousness that comes from Christ. And then in chapter 4 he says, Therefore, uh, because Abraham was before the law, before circumcision... Uh, God made the promise to Abraham before all the law, before all these things, that in your seed, being Jesus Christ, all the nations will be blessed. And if you this morning are in Christ, then you're free. I mean, that's just radical, that's different than everything that's out there. Now what we've been doing since chapter five, uh, chapter five through eight begins to talk about the implications of what that means if you really are a Christian if you're born again of God's Holy Spirit and you've been regenerate and made alive, united to Christ. And 5 through 8 is saying, you're safe. And therefore he begins, and we've looked in chapter 5 where he says, listen, you this morning are either in Adam and he is your federal head and if you're in Adam there's nothing you can do to undo what he did thousands and thousands of years ago. He acted on your behalf and you're united to him in his death. But Paul says the implication for us as Christians is that if you are in Christ and because you are in Christ, He is the second Adam. He has done for you what you cannot do. He has secured your salvation and you can rest in Him. Now today, I was telling Steve Cummings, who was helping lead worship, is a radical verse that I really am not even sure if we as good Reformed theologians understand. Because Paul is saying, you are so safe in Christ, you must understand that the effects of sin are still there. And the more you seek to honor Christ because he's died for you, the more you'll begin to discover how far the gap is. And that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Superabundant grace. Superabundant grace. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you need superabundant grace today? Or you're just fine? You're fine. But you see, the radical nature of the gospel, and Paul is saying, uh, I can't believe that I myself, wretched man that I am, that where sin abounds, the grace abounds all the more. Let me ask you this Is that important? Isn't that unbelievable? certainly will help you in your relationships. So let's look at our text and see what he says about this superabundant grace today for those of you who are secure in Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, one, so the act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death and grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I uh, thank you for a time together as your people. We thank you that uh, churches that are faithful to the gospel are meeting around the world, preaching Christ, and that out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, Men and women are coming to King Jesus. Pray for those who are here this morning, Uh, Lord, who've never really understood the gospel. Maybe they don't believe the gospel. Uh, Lord, that they would hear the gospel today. And Father, for us who have lost sight of the magnitude of the work of Christ, and lost sight of his love for us that is undying and unending, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, Lord, that uh, that once again we would hear the music of the gospel, the fresh winds of the gospel would blow in our lives and make us new. Bless our and bless our relationships, our marriages, uh, our work, and our efforts uh, to build Your kingdom. And we ask it in Your name. Amen. Uh, many uh, many of you are committed runners here at Redeemer. Uh, a lot of you have run uh, half marathons. Uh, some of you have actually run uh, full marathons. That's like every twenty miles, right? I mean, that's a bunch. In fact, uh, I understand, I see Joseph Brewbaker out there. Uh, is, is it true that you actually qualified to, to run in the Boston Marathon? Very good. Hats off to you. Man, that's a lot of running. Um, <laughs> and a lot of you like to run. Maybe you're not marathoners. Um, but if you are, you need to know, you, you probably know the name of a man named Jim Fix. Uh, Jim Fix started running in 1967. He was 35 years old. He was 60 pounds overweight. And uh, he would smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, and he decided that he needed to do something about it, so he started running. And uh, 10 years later, in 1977, he had lost 60 pounds. He was no longer smoking. And he wrote a book uh, that is the book on running called The Complete Book of Running. Uh, that book spent, uh, 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 spent 11 weeks on the number one chart and uh, it inspired millions of people to get going, get out running. He would go around and he would speak at nightclubs, uh, not nightclubs, the uh, talk shows. <laughs> <laughs> Sock a few down and go out and run around the... Uh, but, uh, <laughs> and uh, to talk about the benefits of exercise. Ironically, few years after that, on July the 20th, 1984, Jim, a, uh, Jim uh, Fix, at the age of 52, went out on his daily run to exercise. Dropped dead of a heart attack. And uh, what they discovered was that he had congenital heart disease. And they he had blockage in, in, in all of his, uh, of his arteries that didn't allow the blood to go through, and, and he dropped dead. So he was... Genetically fixed and and, uh, predisposed that uh, no matter what he did, that that was going to happen. But here's the point Uh, Jim Fix was actually running himself to death. And the very thing that he thought would actually assist him killed him. Now, again, I'm not saying don't run. I mean, I run half a mile a a day or so, but (laughs) I'm not saying that. But I remember the first time I heard it, I was at seminary, and, it, and I was, we were looking uh, at this uh, law and grace thing. And uh, it, nothing could illustrate more the point of our text today where Paul says in verse 20, Now the law came to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. How many of you who are here today, maybe you're here for the first time and your whole assumption about uh, gaining eternal life and standing before God in His presence one day is by keeping the law. By being a moral person. Uh, And yet the very thing that God has given to basically kill us is the very thing that you're seeking to do to bring life. But you see, the problem is there is a congenital spiritual heart disease that our father, Adam, has given us. How many of you this morning who profess to be Christians Uh, and yet in your own mind uh, you're still not grasping the gospel because you've left off Christ and you begin to keep the law again. Uh, And you begin in your own efforts to, as it were, uh, create a righteousness of your own, and you're an addict to self-righteousness. You ever been around addicts? Addicts destroy themselves and they destroy everybody around them. And let me tell you, there are many, many in the name of Christ... Professing to be Christians, believing evangelical doctrines, but you're addicted to self righteousness. And far, bit that sin is increasing, you're doing everything in the world to suppress it by your meager efforts to keep the law. And what is the end result of those who are around you? One of some of the worst places to be are in churches. Churches that are conservative, preach the Bible but not preaching Christ. Our communion is about Christ and what He's done on your behalf. It's about His covenant that He has made with us. It is not not about you examining yourself, seeing if you did a fairly good job this week, and therefore you're a worthy partaker. And it destroys our families. And it destroys our marriages, though we say we're Christians. Because, you see, we're seeking to establish a righteousness of our own. Now, the Apostle Paul, we looked at this several, a couple of years ago in the book of Galatians. And uh, let me remind you of what what it's like to seek to keep the law, whether you're a professing Christian or whether you're not a Christian, and you're seeking to establish your own righteousness and be a good person. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on the law are under a curse... For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. It is the law, Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could bring life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Friends, you are either in Adam or you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're free. So here's the proposition, I guess, if I had one uh, this morning. If through the law... You have come to understand the true nature of your sin, then your life will reflect abounding grace. You know, I think that's what makes be a Christian. You, you really have cast yourself upon Christ, and uh, because you have, and you're constantly looking to Jesus Christ. He is the one that brings life, and what you receive from him, you give to other people. Are you believing that that gospel? Does your life reflect being a, a good person, a good Christian, someone who knows their theology, someone who can spouse off stuff, somebody who can do apologetics? What do people see? What is my wife seeing me? What are my children seeing me? Because you see, what you receive, you give. And if you need grace, you give grace. And how is it that grace comes? It only comes when it's superabundant, on top of sin that is added because of the law. Or the law that was added that increases your sin. I have three points that I want to make. But let me say that there are two people that I want to address first. It is my job and this, my task this morning to challenge us who are smug in the law and our own righteousness and to keep you from being like Jim Fix who's going out there running and completely thinking you're, you're doing great but when it gets right down to it, your heart, the very thing you're doing is going to kill you. And secondly, my goal is to remind you believers who've lost hope how much he loves you I've got to do two things. Smugness and brokenness. And so I have three points. i to talk about the grace of the law. The grace of the law. And then I want to talk about the grace of the gospel. And then there's a great warning to a false gospel of grace. So the first thing to see is this. The grace of the law of God we see it in verse 20 now the law came to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more now first off you might be saying well where's grace in the law well, first we need to understand it does come from God. It came from God. He says uh, here that the law came. Where did it come from? It came from God. And, uh, and so the children of Israel uh, were the ones that got the Ten Commandments. It wasn't the Hittites. It wasn't the uh, Native American Indians. It wasn't the, uh, the Celtic people. It wasn't uh, the Perizzites, the Amorites, and I could go on through all the nations. But God chose Israel. Why did he choose Israel? Because they're wonderful people? No. In fact, he tells uh, Moses that that they are... uh, Moses tells them that they're a stiff-necked people. And so I don't think God chose you because you're a wonderful people. He chose you because he chose you. But one of the great blessings of God to Israel is before they were constituted as a nation... He comes to Mount Sinai. What a wonderful day that must have been in some ways for the children of Israel that God shows up. But you remember when He showed up on the mountain? It was fire and smoke. It's Mount Sinai. And of course, uh, the people decided that, you know, maybe maybe uh, we'll let Moses worship that God. And so they created another God. And uh, they 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 called him Jehovah. But it was a it was a, a calf, and you remember they brought all their stuff in. And they began to they have a huge worship service, and you know what they were doing, don't you? They were dancing. they were having a good time. Um, but you see, when the law the law came, it, it, it came in severity. Not because God is severe, but because God is holy. God is righteous. This is what does he want from his people? He wants his people to be holy and righteous. He wants them to reflect uh, who God is. That, that you're not committing adultery here at Redeemer. That, that you're, not, you're not stealing from one another. And uh, so if nobody committed adultery and nobody stole, it would be a wonderful gathering of people together because we'd be like God. But we know we're not, don't we? So the question ends up being then, uh, so in what way is the law grace? How is the law gracious? Well, the reason it is gracious is because, according to the scriptures, that if God had not sent the law, we would not understand our need for Christ. In other words, he says that the law was given for what purpose? so that your trespasses might increase. So how foolish would it be to think that God's grace in the law is give us the law in and, and some way to think that by getting better and working hard at keeping the law uh, that it would bring life. No, the law is good, but we're slaves to sin. And so what does the law do? Well, it begins to uh, well up in your own heart, the very things that have been dormant there. Let me put it another way: If you if you have children, uh, children, what's kind of have you noticed how there's dormant sin in them, right? And so you train them, and you don't have to tra- you don't have to train them to be uh, uh, selfish, do you? I mean, you say, hey, you can't be selfish. And so you begin to give them these laws so that they might, as it were, restrain what is natural to them. But here's the problem with that. If the law is there to begin to reveal our sin and we're sitting there seeking to restrain our sin by trying to keep the law, what Paul says is it begins to well up those things that are already there. And you begin to bow back and you buck up and uh And if it doesn't uh choke you uh that is ultimately its intent. It means that it hasn't done its work yet now I know I've given this illustration before, but when I was a kid growing up we uh, we lived in a a house that had a basement it was an old houses a hundred years old and in the basement there was uh concrete floors and dust would settle settle in the floors and um and so the idea was to go, uh, uh, every now and then, we'd be sent down by our parents to sweep that dusty floor. And so you go down there with your brooms and you start sweeping, and you start sweeping. And then the next thing you know, that you got all this stuff going up your nose, and it begins to choke you out. And you go upstairs, you know, to take a break, and you look at your face and you got brown stuff all over your nose. Then you start st- coughing up stuff. And you see, what the law of God is to do, it is to basically go down in the basement of your heart and it is to begin to be sweeping away, to, to, not to bring you life, but to begin to choke you. And it's the only way to get the floor uh, clean, you say, is, is to sweep the floor. But you see, here's the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Christ is that when the, when the law actually does its work, uh, what we would do is we would go down to the basement we'd have bottles of water and then we'd just start taking it and sprinkling it and it would knock all the dust down. Of course, you'd have to go back and sweep it later, but unlike the gospel. But you see, that is the purpose of the law. The grace of God is, is to bring the law so that sin might become exceedingly sinful. And uh, And self-righteousness, legalism, all these other things, if you begin to think, that you're somehow attaining some favor before God and man by your efforts, really what you're doing is you're choking everybody else out. Uh, Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 7. Because, and we'll talk, look at this later, but, but the question of the Jews is, well, if, 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 if we're either in Christ or in Adam then why did God give ten more commandments? What is the purpose of the law? Is the law bad? And Paul's response to that is, no, the law is good. But he says this, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law sin lies dead. It's there. I once was alive apart uh, from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, Paul says the law is good, but we're sold. We're slaves to sin. I mean, mean, has anybody ever told you you need to do so-and-so? And before they told you, you would probably have done it. But because they told you to do it, all of a sudden it begins to well up stuff inside you, doesn't it? Why are we like that? We're like that because we're sinners. We like that because we're separate from God. We're like that, friends, because we live for our own glory and not for the glory of God. And we seek to establish our own righteousness, understanding that until the law comes and chokes you down with your own self-righteousness, you will never, ever, ever understand superabundant grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I know I've mentioned him before, but he did say this uh, to preachers uh, coming out of seminary. I've said this many times. He said, gentlemen, when you preach God's law, you preach it to kill. Do not make it a manageable burden. So that's God's grace, isn't it? He gave the law so that the trespass might increase. That's the grace of the law. But there's a better grace, or let's just say there's a hand in glove grace, and that is the grace of the gospel. What does he say in verse 20? Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, uh, yeah, there's a law. It's, uh, it's done its good job. It's stirring up uh, in you your need for Christ. But the grace of the gospel is super abundant above that. And friends, until that is happening, uh, there is no understanding of Christ's work. Charles Spurgeon, who uh, I read several sermons by him on this text. And uh, I felt like just reading his sermon. would be a lot better than mine. But let me, let me read what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, There are two powerful forces in the world, which has been ever since Eve partook of the forbidden fruit. Those two forces are sin and grace. A very great power of sin, a power dark and mysterious, but full of force. The sorrows of mankind, where came they but from sin? We should have not known war or pestilence or famine or sickness or sorrow ever had smitten the human race had not sin sown its evil seed in the earth. Sin is the Pandora's box from which all evil has come to mankind. See what ravages death has made? Its effects are everywhere. Its mighty blade mows men down as the mower cuts down the grass of the field. But death came by sin and after death comes judgment. And to the ungodly, the doom that never can be desired. The eternal wrath whose blackness the wildest tempest cannot imitate. And who dig this pit? It was the justice of God. On account of sin. And sin must therefore be charged with the authorship of sorrow, disease, death, and hell. This is no means power. This is is no means power which we have come into conflict. It is a veritable Goliath stalking along and defying the whole race of mankind. He gives you a picture of what sin has done. It is ruining our families. It is ruining our joy. It is ruining our peace. And it even gets worse when you seek to manage it by self-righteousness. By your own desires to quell your own heart which is filled still as believers united to Christ with sin until you meet Him in glory. Here's what Spurgeon says though about this is the power to fight and overcome sin ever described in the word of God as the natural goodness of human nature is that what's going uh, to what, is that what's going to bring life to us at Redeemer Is what the people of Athens here across the street at Parkview uh, and the kids that we minister to in Pauldo and your friends who live uh, over in Five Points is really what they need from you your goodness and your kindness? because you see goodness and kindness is like perfume over the top of death. It's like spraying a corpse this riding uh, with uh, right guard or, or even Nico Nico whatever in him. Chanel number five <laughs> power of human goodness. But he goes on to say this. The only counterforce to sin, the only power that's greater than sin that dwells at the bottom of our hearts is the grace of God. And therefore our text tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Jesus Christ said this. I didn't come to destroy the law the law is good and he says that in the Sermon on the Mount but you know what he also says in the Sermon on the Mount you know what he also says you be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect any religion tell you that any, any gospel that's out there tell you hey look uh, you, you need to be perfect uh, you know what you, the first thing you would say is that's ridiculous who can be perfect uh, Steve, you said it. We make excuses for ourselves all the time. I got one in December, okay? And I could give you my excuses, and they're good. But it doesn't matter what my excuses are. You know what? I've got to pay the ticket. And, and you see, what, what the, the but Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. No, the law must be carried out. Someone has to keep the law. Adam didn't keep the law. You don't keep the law. You don't love your husband. You don't love your, love your wife. You're a hypocrite. The church, we're all hypocrites. And the law exposes the sham that our lives are. But Jesus Christ says, I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And how does he fulfill it? How is he the end of the law? Nailed to a cross... All the sins of of us who the law is rattling before us forcing us to look to Christ causing us to look to Christ and seeing God's grace in Christ that our sins are imputed to Him and His righteousness to us. I mean, that to me is amazing. That He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But you see... But you see, the only way that's going to happen, that you truly come and cast yourself upon Christ, is when the law comes and is added to increase your sin and your need for Him. But you see, where sin abounds, the grace abounds all the more, doesn't it? Uh, I heard somebody put it this way. Uh, You're the Hoover Dam. And uh, because you are uh, dead in Adam there was a hole poked in that dam. And you're born with a hole in that dam. And water keeps filling up in that dam and it keeps filling up in, in that dam. And because of the weakness at that spot, when it gets com- filled completely up and it begins to overflow, the dam bust. And uh, and is a picture of what comes out of our hearts because we're in Adam. And eventually, it shows forth. But you see the gospel is like Noah's flood overwhelming that damn bust. So where there is sin uh, and there is brokenness in our lives, there is superabounding grace uh, to those who believe. So here's an application that I want to conclude on this last uh, point. Um. Perhaps you say, you know what, I, I've there's no hope for me. I, I've sinned. I've had an abortion. I've had two. As a matter of fact, nobody even knows about it. I had a girl one time. She was from a, her dad was a minister. She lived with all those years. Never told her father, never told her family. Maybe you're like that. And you go, there's no real hope for me. what law is going to bring my child back. And I would say to you, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Uh, Perhaps there are some of you who, uh, for the first time, are beginning to understand your self-righteousness. I hope hope maybe some of you are today, and you're going, you know what, I think that my self-righteousness, my efforts to keep the law, and that my desire to be approved by men has basically destroyed my family. And I haven't been bringing grace to my family for all these years. Are you telling me? that God can have grace upon me, I will tell you His grace is super abounding to you. Perhaps you're one who is, is, uh, struggles with anger and, and your impatience, and you know that your impatience has wounded other people. Where, where sin abounds and the law comes and says, man, you're an angry person. Grace abounds all the more. It superabounds. Yes, the grace of God is found by being plunged in the blood of Christ and resting in Him alone. So that's the grace of the law and the grace of the gospel. But I do need to say this. There is a false gospel of grace. And I need to say this for two minutes. A false gospel of grace that unfortunately superabounds within our realm. But Paul says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The question is, being well, how do I know I'm really getting this superabundant grace? Well, well, first off, let me tell you, it is not when you are making excuses for Christian liberties. I, I'm, you college students, let me tell you something. I was an RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt, Mississippi State. And it was always amazing to me how many students would begin to appreciate the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, the gospel sets you free and then they would kind of begin to run toward Christian liberties. But you see, Christian liberties are not life. Whether you smoke or drink or this or that and the other, that that doesn't bring life whether you can or you can't. It doesn't bring it whether you believe in it or don't believe in it. Uh the, the, the Christian liberties uh, is an issue that I think we, we need to address because you see what, what the gospel does is when you're united to Christ it makes you alive it's not just that I believe these things about the grace of God it is grace that comes through being united to Christ that changes us and transforms us perhaps you know all the reform uh, doctrines and you know these things but when's, when is the last time seriously that you have begun to be bothered by your sin in such a way uh, that it you weep over it your marriage is marked not by grace but by bitterness or indifference I could go through this whole list and we'll, talk, we'll look at this in two weeks from now as we come to this text because Paul wants to straighten that out but what he does want you to understand is this that if you're united to Christ you're free you're set free and because you are even when the law comes back in and it begins to scream at you you're not what you need to be where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Last question, and then we come to the Lord's Supper. How do you know if that's working in your life? Uh, That that Christian liberties are not more important to you uh, than the gospel itself. Uh, How do you know if it's beginning to impact your relationships at work and uh, the boss that you do have that's difficult to work with or or, uh, when you're in your own marriage or your children? Let me tell you how you know it's beginning to take root in your life. Is what you receive, you give. Superabounding grace to those who are sinners, and you're receiving grace, and you know the life is in Christ. When you're hooked up to Him and you're running to Him, and the grace of God begins to overflow, it should overflow to other people because you're united to Him. Do you know this, Lord? Are you resting in Him? Are you angry all the time? Bitter? It's not fair. Friends, is sin abounding? Is the law doing its work so that grace might superabound? Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, we thank you for this text, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Oh, Lord, would you cause us to see that good news, that gospel. For those who are here today that are... Uh, Lord, that feel so guilty that they, 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 they feel that there's no way that your grace is able to overcome their sin. Father calls them to believe this text, that the law was given and added so that sin might increase, so that grace might be superabounding. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives these truths, and uh, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.